there is something of an order to the structure of the study of the tabernacle. Because of the way the tabernacle is built, because of the symbolism that it represents, there is an order to studying it. You can either go from the inside out or the outside in. Who knows what I mean when I make that statement? And let me ask you while you're thinking about it, do you want more light or is this light enough? All right, well, let's Stephen make the call. If you were planned on sleeping, you get on him later. <laughs> or I'll get on you later if you're planned on sleeping. <laughs> it could be from the aspect of man coming to God mm-hmm. or God coming to man. Exactly right. And if you were even to look at perspective, man's perspective of looking at the process versus God's perspective of looking at the process. God's on the inside looking out, isn't he? And we start on the outside looking in, and the goal is to get in. Get into the courtyard, get into the holy place, and if God is willing, and if you have the grace to overcome, to get into the holiest of all, which is better than any other compartment, isn't it? God is already in the holiest. Don't you think it's amazing that God sent his son out of the holiest to come get us out of the camp? That's really where we were, if you're thinking of the symbolism of it. He left out of love, didn't he? So that is one way that you can approach this. I have seen people teach on the tabernacle in terms of writing books on the tabernacle. Many of them, actually. They started with the interior and worked their way out. And you know what I think a lot of the problem with that is? I don't think they really comprehend the concept of what the idea of the tabernacle is. They're starting on the inside and talking about the ark and the holiest, and they move out. But that's exactly the opposite of the way I think it ought to be taught. Because one of the things the tabernacle is a picture of is the progressive plan of salvation. And you don't start inside and work your way out unless you're a backslider. And even then you don't start on the, all the way on the inside. Let me ask you like this. This will be a little bit of a tough question if you don't know the tabernacle or if you don't understand the symbolism. Especially when I haven't even started the class yet. But can you backslide from the holy place? If you're in a second heaven state, if you are in the holy place, spiritually speaking, can you backslide? How about in the holiest? No. That's important to understand. Once somebody gets into the holiest, they cannot backslide again because you don't get into the holiest until it's impossible to backslide. So you can't start in third heaven and work your way out, can you? We don't want to come at it from that perspective. We want to come at it from the outside and work our way in and understand what the process is. So that's how I'm going to treat this. And we'll be going in order in terms of how it would affect you if you were standing out in the camp of Israel and you were to experience each stage of that. What does it look like from the outside? What does it mean to be outside? What does it take to enter the courtyard? What does it mean that you're in the courtyard? And once you're in the courtyard, what kind of operations are going on in there? Now, mind you, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about a natural and a spiritual application, aren't we? There's things going on in the courtyard that are natural. There were priests offering up sacrifices. There were priests washing their hands and feet at the laver. But there's a spiritual operation going on in the courtyard as well, and that's the real point that we want to drive home in this. And then going into the holy place and what it means to enter into the holy place. What does it mean to be under the light of the golden lampstand? What does it mean to eat the showbread from the table of showbread? What does it mean to offer up incense on the golden altar? What does it mean to pass through if we go backwards? What does it mean to pass through the door? It's called the door most of the time into the tabernacle, even though it is a curtain. And then what does it mean to pass through the veil? Which it's usually called a veil when you're entering into the holiest and a door when you're entering into the holy. 
and a gate when you're entering into the courtyard. You need to be able to differentiate that. Do you have some, Steve? Okay. Just looking lively. I like that. Keep moving around like that with bright eyes. I like it. <laughs> Why would you want to study the tabernacle? Somebody give me some practical reasons. Somebody that doesn't understand the core issue, and that is the importance of the Old Testament and the importance of the symbolism and the allegory and the poetry and the prophecies contained in the Old Testament. Someone that doesn't see the value in that would probably think, why are we bothering studying the tabernacle? Other than as a historical study, like studying the battles of Napoleon, if you're not a general, studying his battles are just an act of entertainment. I don't know how entertained you'd be, but if you're not actually going to go to war college, if you're not actually going to go to West Point or somewhere else to learn to be an officer and to lead men in battle, then studying ancient battles is an act of entertainment to some extent because you're probably not going to use all that information practically. So let's think about it in regards to the tabernacle. Why would you want to study the tabernacle? You just said, you talked earlier, how it portrays that path, those steps to salvation, and that's something I would certainly like to attain to one day. Amen. I think if you understand that, it gives you more of a foundation to understand first, second, and third heaven. Mm-hmm. It causes you to understand what God has in store for the church. The picture that is implemented in the symbolism of the Old Testament, the picture of his son. If you can understand the pattern that God gave, not just the physical building, but the pattern on a spiritual level, then it's going to show you the operation of the church in the latter end. That's right. And added to what Steve said, which is probably part of what he's getting at, there's also prophetic pictures in the tabernacle. It's not just a picture of the church, so to speak, or the person of salvation. It also has some measurements that if you understand how to multiply those measurements and come up with a sum, you may start to see some pictures of even the length of time of certain dispensations. How long that Israel is going to be under the law is contained in there in measurement. How long that the church age will exist is contained in there in measurement. How long the millennial reign will last is contained inside the measurements of the tabernacle. Those are more than just symbolism. That's prophetic insight, isn't it? There's a lot of foundational issues that are contained inside the tabernacle. That, I think, is what Chris started us with, is the idea that there's salvational issues, especially foundational issues, what I call milk doctrine. That's initial salvational issues, things you have to know as far as the basics of salvation and understanding it. The idea of taking you from that state, though, when you start as a baby, desiring the sincere milk of the word to a point where you would hunger for meat, and not only hunger for it, but be able to digest it and grow and come to a place where you have a full maturity in Christ, is also all part of the picture of the tabernacle, which Chris was alluding to as well. And then some of the things Brother Steve was talking about, there are some deep doctrinal concepts hidden within this as well. A little deeper than just the common salvation message of how to get from point A to point B. There's things in there that reveal some elements of the structure of God's government. There's also elements in there that reveal how we can get to deeper truths, what it takes, what elements need to be in place to get some of these deeper truths. All that said, what do you think the purpose of the tabernacle is? It's a picture of what's in heaven. That's right. I would say that the study of the tabernacle to our group of people is probably the most important thing. If you look back at Brother Sowers, what he was called for, the restoration of the church. You start talking about coming from a Reformation viewpoint to a Restoration viewpoint, then you have to start looking at the tabernacle. 
and understanding the different integral parts of the tabernacle is what separates us from the rest of the religious world. Jim, that's excellent. Understanding the difference between Reformation and Restoration and having the vision that we feel like we have of Restoration and all the elements that go along with that. The Bride message and other things that go hand in hand with that. That's an excellent point. I've said this any time anyone's talked to me about the tabernacle. I honestly do not believe there is any symbolic study you could make in the Bible more important for this day. For this day. I don't mean it'll be this important in the millennial reign. I'm not here by any means yet in this study, and we're not going to be talking about the temple. But I personally think that the pictures of the tabernacle are fulfilled primarily in the church age. In the 2,000 year period of the day of grace, and the pictures of the temple, the symbolism of the temple, will be fulfilled in the millennial reign. So there is no more important symbolic study of an overall exhaustive study. I don't mean one little piece of symbolism somewhere. I mean something that contains a lot of symbolism. Then the tabernacle, especially to understand the doctrine that we have and the vision that we have, you're absolutely right. That's an excellent point. I was thinking because of the, um, it being a pattern of the heavenly things, it's really showing, um, it's almost like a, a, the sun you know, casting a shadow down here on earth. We're seeing something really major as what God wants us to understand is going on in the heavenlies. Almost like even the types in the scripture, it becomes a catalyst for what it is we believe and why we believe it. That's right. And it goes hand in glove with what we believe on certain issues. They fit hand in glove, and it's a perfect fit. It isn't a loose glove, it's not too tight, and you gotta yank it on your hand. It just slips on as easy as can be when you understand certain doctrines and then you see it in the structure of the tabernacle. There it is. There's a secondary issue associated with all that before I get to this question. Why I think it's so important, and I was wanting to do this in the same kind of a format that we did with our Doctrine of the Devil, but with an extra element, which is the test that we're going to do. And you'll do those on your own, by the way. We'll talk about them at the end, but that isn't something we're going to do during the class. At the end of each class, we'll go over the answers for the test at the end of the next class, for the last class. Does that make sense? The test you're holding on to is for you to take home and take on your own time. You can use your Bible. You can use your notes. And next time around, we'll go over the answers. Part of what I really wanted to do, what I'm hoping is that some of you brethren will get it so deep that you can teach it. I've never been a person that wants you to have to come to me every time you're hungry. I want to teach you to fish. Now, if I've got food that you're hungry for, and God hopefully will keep providing things, whatever he provides, that's wonderful. But I don't just want you to come to me. I want you to develop the tools that you can have the information for yourself. And in the case of the tabernacle, I would love for our brethren to have such a good grasp on the elements of the tabernacle, you could use it as a teaching tool for new people especially. Because it is just that. What both Jim and Brother Kosa just said is absolutely right. It is so foundational, so integral to what we do, that if you've got a good grasp on it, it's a tremendous tool to build an understanding of doctrine with somebody, especially somebody new. Three main symbolic elements in the tabernacle. You could probably extrapolate this out and come up with more. I wouldn't argue that. But there's three main things that are pictured in the tabernacle. When you look at the whole tabernacle and most of its pieces and parts, there's three main things that are pictured here. It's unfortunate, but most of the books you read on the tabernacle don't go further with the symbolism than Christ. Now, Christ is the preeminent symbol without doubt. But there's a lot more than just things picturing Jesus in the tabernacle. 
A lot of times they try to make everything a picture of Jesus. And there's more than just Christ in an individual sense pictured in the tabernacle. So I gave you one of them. One of them is the person who institutes and inaugurates the plan of salvation. Christ was part of the design team that brought the plan of salvation into effect and he inaugurated it by his act, his selfless act of self-sacrifice. The plan and the process of salvation, Chris talked about the process. Inside the symbolism of the tabernacle is a picture of the plan of salvation and the process, listen, they're two slightly different things. The plan and the process by which that plan's carried out. From the inside out, meaning God sent his son, and by which it's carried out from the outside in, which means you receive his son. And you go through the process so that you can be on the inside. There's the plan and process of salvation. There's the person who instituted and inaugurated that plan. What else? There's one other thing in here. The church is right. The third thing is... The people. I think Rose said the church. That's the thing I think is missed most in studies on the tabernacle. Most studies of the tabernacle will bring the plan of salvation in. They'll bring the person of Christ in and they'll make most of it about that. They may not understand that it's a process, a progressive plan. And there's a reason why the stations, if you want to call them that, I hate to use that word, but the stations of the tabernacle, the places of the tabernacle from the gate to the brazen altar, if you're going in a straight line. From the gate to the brazen altar to the brazen laver to the door. And then you enter in between the gold lampstand and the table of showbread. And you have in front of you the altar of incense. Those are a progressive picture of moving forward in your relationship with God until finally you're there at the Ark of the Covenant. So I worded it, I think, this way. The people who communicate and carry out the plan. There are pictures of the church and the individual members of the church contained in here. Do you know that there's a number of different elements of the tabernacle that are pieces and parts, some of which are sheet and wood covered with brass, some of which are sheet and wood covered with gold? Do you think there's a difference? Remember when we talked in the Song of Solomon about trees and what wood represents in the Bible, how it represents humanity, whether in terms of an individual or even a nation, a tree represents that. Wood represents humanity. There's a vast difference between humanity covered with brass and humanity covered with gold. Brass or bronze represents judgment. Gold represents perfection. There are stages to that. There's a vast difference between you being in a carnal state versus being in a state where you're under judgment, where you're in a state where you're redeemed, where you're in a state where you're perfected. It does contain some elements of the people who carry out that plan. And I think I said here a few moments ago that my view of the tabernacle is that it's a picture of the church age, the period of grace. My view of the temple would be that it's a picture of the millennial reign. I'm not going to go into that, but there's some beautiful pictures of how many more of certain things there are in the temple than there are in the tabernacle. That's where you can get a good starting point. It would really show you how it's magnified. Whatever was going on in the tabernacle was magnified in the temple on a much larger scale, and that's exactly what the millennial reign is going to be compared to the church age. Somebody brought up this point, several of you possibly, that the tabernacle is a typological picture. It's a reflection of the true. You may not have worded it that way, but it's a shadow of the reality of something. You could go through blocks of scripture to get this. Probably the best possible chapter, if you want to read a chapter just about this, Maybe two chapters, really. If you read the 8th and ninth chapters of Hebrews, that'd be a good starting point. Hebrews 8.2 refers to Jesus as a minister of the sanctuary 
and of the true tabernacle. Now what Paul, who I believe was the writer of Hebrews, was doing here is he was talking about the current system they had had under the physical tabernacle in the wilderness and the physical temple of Solomon rebuilt by Ezra in Nehemiah's day and later. Of course, the later temple, the restored temple, then the extended elements that Herod added. He was talking about that sacrificial system and all that was going on there, and he compared that natural system, whether the tabernacle or the temple, to something else that it, that tabernacle or temple was only a reflection of. So the tabernacle or the temple weren't the true. It wasn't the real. It wasn't the reality. It was just a shadow of something real, wasn't it? You could jump forward to Hebrews 9, and there's two places in Hebrews 9 that are really significant, but it'd be worth your while to read the whole chapter. Let me finish Hebrews 8, 2 first before we jump ahead. Somebody's got it in front of me. Make sure I'm quoting it right. He was a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Is that how it says it? You need to unravel what this is saying. It's not talking about God pitching the tabernacle out in the wilderness. It's talking about the fact that God designed the tabernacle in the wilderness, but men pitched that one. But there is another tabernacle in the heavens that God designed and God put in place. He pitched it. That's pretty powerful if you think about it. That means his own power established a place of habitation, an abode, a dwelling place for him to dwell in, his dimensional abode. What you see in the tabernacle in the wilderness is only a hazy shadow of the reality of where God is at and how God operates in his government in heaven. That's what Hebrews is alluding to. Now, if we went forward to Hebrews 9, it's in the 8th and 9th verse. The whole chapter, again, would be worth your while. But in the 8th and 9th verse and in the 23rd and 24th, the 8th and 9th, it says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest was not yet... Who's got it right in front of them? Keep me on track. Not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. The first tabernacle. What do you mean the way of the holiest wasn't made manifest? God built the thing. There was a holiest place. All you had to do is open the curtain. That's the way in, right? Open the veil. The way into the true holiest. The way into the holiest where God is at. Had not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle, tabernacle in the wilderness, was standing. And then if you jump down to the 23rd and 24th verse, there's others. I'm just giving you highlights. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but that the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Did I miss a word? Okay, so the patterns of things in the heavens. Now that's a little confusing too. Let me simplify that for you. The tabernacle on the earth was a pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. And when the tabernacle on the earth was purified, they did it multiple ways, but it was always purified by blood. Blood would be applied to the horns of the altar. Blood would be applied to the horns of the, of the golden altar. Blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. They went through a process of purifying the physical tabernacle, and it was purified with the blood of animals. Now, this is a deep theological concept. We're not going to spend time in until we get up to the golden altar or maybe the Ark of the Covenant. But notice he makes this statement, but the heavenly places themselves with better things than these. Is that right? Better sacrifices than these? The tabernacle in heaven had to be sanctified as well but it was done with blood far more pure than the blood of any animal. And that's the point of this passage, with better sacrifices, the sacrifice of God's own Son. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Is that right? Keep me on there, brother. You got it in front of you. Mm-hmm. He's not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. 
but into heaven itself. That tabernacle was a natural image, a natural representation of heaven. But the point I want to drive home is the importance of this. We're studying something that you all just gave me a lot of good reasons why we should study. Jim, everybody had great reasons, but that really gets to the guts of the whole thing. This is the message God gave us. You know, God gives different people different messages. If you don't believe that, read the prophets and find out if they all had the same message. God gives people different messages for different times, for different reasons, for different hearers, different individuals they're giving the message to. God gave us a message about some things. And you know, the best foundation for that message is right here in this study we're making. Now, that's the most important practical reason to study it, possibly. But think of the spiritual reason. We're studying something that God designed to be a perfect reflection of his own government and operation and order in heaven. So there are some pretty vital reasons to study it. And I want to see how many titles of the tabernacle you can name. Let me ask you this just for my own entertainment, and that should be a big clue to you. How many times is the title the tabernacle of Moses used in the Bible? That is the title I usually hear people use for this, you know. How many times is the title tabernacle of Moses used in the Bible? Brody's nodding his head no. Does that mean zero, five? What are we looking at, Brody? I'm guessing zero. Zero is right. <laughs> Tabernacle's never called the Tabernacle of Moses. You know why? Moses helped to build it, but it wasn't Moses' tabernacle. And it's never called the Tabernacle of Moses. Get that out of your vocabulary because it's not a title for the Tabernacle. See if you can come up with some. Tent. The tent. That's right. It's called the tent. If you wanted to get the full name, it's called the Tent of the Congregation or the Tabernacle of the Congregation. What else? What's the name of the tabernacle? The tabernacle. Wasn't it called the Tabernacle of God? The Tabernacle of the Lord. I'll give you some that I don't think anyone's going to get. The Tabernacle of Witness. Tabernacle of Testimony. One that I doubt anyone's going to get, but I think is really interesting. It's in 1 Samuel 1.9. It calls it the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the sanctuary. I gave you some clues already, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but how many doctrinal or theological or salvational, those are all interrelated words, I realize, but how many theological or salvational, soteriological can you come up with that are hidden in the tabernacle? I'll start you off. The sevenfold light of God. The fact that there is a sevenfold light that shines when the Spirit is operating at its fullest. Can you think of some other things that are hidden in there that are theological, doctrinal, soteriological? Soteriology, by the way, is the study of salvation. So some about the nature of salvation. What did you have, Steve? The Godhead. The Godhead. Doctrine of perfection. Doctrine of perfection. Did they have the bread ordered as like the two sections of the Old and New Testament? The order of the bread representing the Word of God. Baptisms. The three baptisms are in there. Initial repentance. Initial repentance. The blood sacrifice, including what Rodney just said. I'm not going to belabor this, but I want to see if you can come up with a couple more. The labor is being the reflection. Yes, the reflection, looking into the Word of God, being washed by the water of the Word. Somebody said this earlier, but the three heavens. Somebody say, well, what do you mean three heavens? Where do you get this idea there's three heavens? I get it from Paul. Paul said, I knew a man once, whether in the body or out of the body, it was cut right up to third heaven. Tells you there's at least three, doesn't there? 
I don't think there's more than three. There's Talmudic and Jewish traditions that have varied numbers of heavens. But I think that if we use the scripture and run it alongside types and shadows, you aren't going to come up with more than three. I think there's three in here. I mentioned this earlier. There are also dispensations of time described in the structure of the tabernacle. The church age, kingdom age, if you want to call it that, the millennial reign. The fact there were going to be four gospels is hidden inside the structure of the tabernacle. The fact that man was going to be redeemed. The fact that man could be perfected. The idea that you have to pass through the veil of the flesh to enter into the holiest of all. Kind of sacrifices. Kind of sacrifices. And if we're going to talk about the first, second, and third heaven, first and second earth. Now, you may say, hold on now. One of those isn't in the Bible. You're right. But if there's a new earth, there has to be an old one done there. Which means there had to be a first one if there's going to be a second. So first and second earth. Chris said here at the very beginning, one of the most important things that really underlies all of it, the progressive nature of the plan of salvation is packed into this. Most people, I said a little bit ago, try to take every symbolic element and apply it to Christ. But just as deep as the picture of Christ in the tabernacle is the picture of the progressive nature of salvation, it is just as deeply layered in there as the types you'll find about Christ. Who wants to try to pronounce this Hebrew word for me? And before you do, I want to warn you because I hear people mispronounce I's in Hebrew all the time. You almost never have an I in Hebrew. It's always a long E. I's sound E. Most of the pronunciations of Bible names, people are mispronouncing because of that reason. Mishkan. Mishkan is the word that is most commonly translated tabernacle. There's another word that's sometimes applied to this. It means tent. Anyone know what the Hebrew word for tent is? Say it loud, Sister Leslie. Ohel. O-H-E-L. Sometimes that's used kind of in a secondary sense to refer to the tabernacle. But the word that's usually used to refer to the tabernacle in Hebrew is mishkan. Now there's a reason I bring that up. I think I covered it in the book. It's a very closely related word to a word we use all the time that isn't in the Bible, but it's a very significant word. The word mishkan means an abode, a habitation, a dwelling place. It'd be like you're talking about the place where you live. The root word is more of a verb, and the root word is shakan. Shakan means to abide somewhere, to dwell somewhere. Is that getting closer to a word that might sound familiar to you? Who said shekinah? I still pronounce it shekinah. It's shekinah. But shekinah is going to be all right. We're going to pronounce it shekinah. That's what I hear people pronounce it a lot. It's not going to hurt anything. Even though I usually do get offended at mispronunciations, I disfellowship people over that, you know. <laughs> no, I don't. Shekinah or Shekinah means that which dwells, that which inhabits. Now that's a much deeper point. The Mishkan is a place where something can come to inhabit, a habitation. Shakan is to inhabit somewhere. But Shekinah or Shekinah means the thing that inhabits or the presence that inhabits, the element that inhabits. You don't see this in the Bible, by the way. The Hebrew word Shekinah is not in the Bible. But it is used later in the Targums and later in some of the rabbinic writings to refer to the presence of God, the dynamic power of God. When it shows up somewhere, it's the Shekinah. I hear people sometimes use this phrase, and this is appropriate, Shekinah glory. It's just talking about the glory of God's presence. You see it throughout the Bible. When God shows up somewhere, 
There's two different pictures that are actual natural events that happen related to the tabernacle that are a manifestation of the Shekinah. There's two things that happened at the tabernacle that immediately revealed that God was present. The cloud and the fire. The cloud and the fire were a picture of His Shekinah glory. It was the glory of God coming down. The Shekinah has to dwell in the Mishkan in order for something to become the dwelling place of God. That is part of what makes a church the house of God. It's not what you put on the marquee. It's not whether you have a steeple or a cross or some other symbol or Hebrew letters on the wall or whatever. What makes a church the house of the Lord is that the Lord's presence comes there. It's the concept. We won't go into tonight because I could talk on it for a while. When God puts his name somewhere, where God writes his name, where God sets his name, where God places his name, there he says, I will come and bless. So when God chooses a place for himself, he comes there in his presence. It's one of the best ways for you to know if you're in the house of the Lord because you feel the presence of the Lord. If it's God's house, it's a habitation for God. And it shouldn't take long for God to show up at his house when people have come to visit. God will show up at his house if it's his. Pattern in the design of the tabernacle, I mentioned here earlier, was extremely precision made. It was to be done according to the pattern that he showed Moses in the mount. Which means when Moses was up in the mount, he was given a very detailed blueprint of exactly how God wanted this tabernacle built. And God wanted it built exactly like that. There could not be any exchange of materials. We just couldn't find enough Shedem wood. But we did find another type of wood. We did find some olive wood. Let us just go ahead and use some olive wood in this place because we've run out of Shedem wood. No, it doesn't work like that. Or we only had enough silver to make 80 sockets. So we're going to have to make the building a little smaller because we don't have a big enough foundation. You think that would have flown? It had to be built according to an exacting and precise and detailed design, the design given by God himself to Moses. If you want to get the design, it's in Exodus 25. If you include the garments of the priesthood, it goes on through, I think, 3111. And then the carrying out of that design, the actual construction work that's being described as being done is described in Exodus 35 through the end of the book, through 40, when it finally describes its inauguration, which we're going to talk about at the end here tonight. So it had to be built with very precise materials. It had to be built with a very precise design structure. It had a blueprint that was not to be deviated from. Somebody get Exodus 2540. And when you've got that, raise your hand so I can give the next one out. Nan's got Exodus 2540. Brody, why don't you get Exodus 2630? Who's going to get Acts 744 for me? Steve Chapel, all right. And how about Hebrews 85? Chris, thank you. Exodus 25, 1 to 9. I'll just pick out a little bit of the pieces there as you all are finding your scriptures. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. He goes on to say, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Which means God showed him exactly what he wanted done. And he expected him to make it the way he did. Okay, who had Exodus 25.40? Was that Dan? Go ahead, Dan, read that. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Brody had Exodus 26.30. 
and thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. Okay, similar statement. You can find that again in Exodus 27, 8, and in Numbers uh, 8, 4. How about Acts 7, 44? Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Okay, and then our last one, Hebrews 8, 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shewed to thee in the mount. Make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. God wanted it done exactly like the way he had described it to Moses. How about the builders of the tabernacle? You really ought to know these two names. They're not used very often in the Bible. But Bezaliel and Aholiab. Bezaliel and Aholiab were very specifically named by God to do this construction work. God didn't tell Moses, go find your two best craftsmen and set them over the job, did he? But God instead made this point of specifically naming the two men that he wanted to use for this job. And that's a pretty high honor given the massive number. At least 600,000 men were part of this camp. That's a pretty high honor if you were the two chosen, that your capability as a craftsman was that high. You know what's even a higher honor about it? They weren't chosen by their fellow craftsmen. There's the best among us. They were chosen by God. Who would better know who the best were? Exodus 31, 1-6 is the passage that talks about that. I'll just take a snippet out of that. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he goes on a little later and says, And I behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. God himself named those men to do that job. And Bezaliel, if you noticed it in this last passage I just read, I've given with him. You'll see this a little clearer a little later. Bezaliel was the overseer. He was the senior man. Aholiab was his assistant. Do you know what their names mean in Hebrew? In the shadow of God. Bezaliel. Bezaliel means in the shadow of God. In the Father's tent, Aholiab. Father's tent. And I just gave you the answer, but can you tell me what tribes they belong to? What tribe did Bezaliel belong to? Judah. Judah. And this second one seems so strange to me. Because this particular tribe is not mentioned favorably throughout Scripture. They get a lot of criticism. I'm going to give you a lot of clues if you don't already know it. They later are considered the epitome of idolatry among the tribes. And they do introduce more idolatry probably than any other tribe. And not only that... In the list of the 12 tribal elements that are in the 7th chapter of Revelation, they're not included, which is pretty significant. What tribe was that? Dan. The tribe of Dan. Strange, isn't it? You got somebody from the kingly tribe and somebody from one of the most idolatrous tribes later, of course, not necessarily now. Stephen, what'd you have? What was the Holyab mean? Holyab means in the Father's tent. Isn't that significant? God would pick somebody with that name and he's about to make the Father's tent? And then he'd pick somebody like Bezaliel in the shadow of God. 
And when we find out about Bezaliel and the incredible covering of the spirit he had, he was literally under the shadow of God while he was working. God knew exactly what he was doing, didn't he? Very precise. Just for curiosity, I want to see if anybody can name what pieces of the tabernacle is Bezaliel specifically mentioned as constructing, which makes it sound like he did them personally. Now, he very well might have done them personally. He also could have been mentioned that way because he was overseeing their construction. But I think probably he made them himself. Do you know what pieces of the tabernacle specifically says he made this and he made this? And it's talking about Bezaliel. Candlestick? He made the golden lampstand. He made the ark. The incense altar? He made the golden altar. The altar of burnt offerings? He made the brazen altar, right? I'm going to help you out. He also made the table of showbread and the brazen laver. Every one of those stations, if you want to call them that, in the later chapters of Exodus, it says Bezaliel did this, Bezaliel did this, and he made this. Now, again, I want to stress, it could be that they mentioned that because he was the overseer. Like someone saying, I build a house when you send a team to do it. But I happen to feel that he probably did it with his own hands. You're not talking about something you need a team to build. You don't need a team to build the golden altar. You might have someone help you, but really it's a one-man job. The golden altar wasn't much bigger than this pulpit. So Bezaliel, pretty significant, wouldn't you think? He must have been some kind of craftsman. Especially that God would entrust him with building such significant and critical items. But I'm going to show you in a moment that it wasn't just Bezaliel's ability as a craftsman that enabled him to be able to build these things. God infused him with a very significant deep covering of the Spirit to get this done. Who was Bezaliel's grandfather? I read it a few minutes ago. Her. Her. Now, I'm sure there was more than one man named Her in the camp of Israel, so there's always going to be an argument. Was that really the same Her that was over there in Exodus 17, isn't it? When Moses' hands began to grow weary and Aaron and Her got in behind him and lifted his hands up. Two very principal men, weren't they? Was that the same Her? That's the question. Josephus stated the tradition that it was the same Her. Hur was from the tribe of Judah, so that would make sense. Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands in Exodus 17. It's when they're fighting the Amalekites, 10th to the 13th verse. Real interesting tradition that Josephus and several rabbinical sources added to this, and that is that they believed Hur married Moses' sister, Miriam. This is why I think that would be interesting if it's true. Here is Bezaliel, the most important person in the entire construction of the tabernacle. If his grandfather is the same her, that was a very principal man. Very significant man who loved God's work and certainly loved Moses, was standing behind Moses. Not only that, what tribe was Miriam from? Levi. Levi. And what tribe did we say that her and Bezaliel were from? And what is the later role of the tribe of Judah? Produce what? Kings. And what's the role of the tribe of Levi? Priests. Priests. If it's true that Bezaliel's grandfather was her, which he was her, regardless if it was this her, and if it's true that her was married to Miriam, he had the blood of the tribe of Judah and Levi flowing in his veins. Kingly and priestly blood. Isn't that significant? There's no doubt, I said here a few minutes ago, that God saturated these men with the Holy Ghost to get this job done. I do think he didn't just pick two Joes off the street that hardly knew how to whittle a whistle. I think he picked two extremely talented craftsmen. But no matter what talent they had, they wouldn't have been good enough to create what God wanted. I want you to think about that, because it's true of us too. 
No matter what gifts they had, no matter how skilled they were at craftsmanship, nobody could have done it perfectly and precisely to please the God of heaven just in and of themselves. And so God covered and saturated these men with the spirit. Bezaliel, it describes it much more in depth than it does a holy ob. How many of the seven spirits of God covered Bezaliel while he was constructing the tabernacle? If you don't know what I mean by the seven spirits of God, you go to Revelation 4, 5 or 5, 6 to see where it describes the seven spirits for the throne. And if you want to know what they are, go to Isaiah 11, 1, 2, 3. And it goes down through this description in Isaiah, it's 11, 2, isn't it? Where it begins talking about it. It begins with the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of God. And then it goes through this list. And it's so interesting, I think, that it puts it in this kind of an order. Who's got it in front of them? Brody? And the Spirit of the Lord. Spirit of the Lord. Upon him. We're going to talk about this when we get to the golden lampstand, but I want you to think about this. The Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Ghost. Every other spirit that comes from the Lord finds its origin in the Holy Ghost, right? So I want you to visualize in front of you that golden lampstand for a minute. And remember it had one central shaft and then three pairs of shafts that came off the sides, didn't it? The Spirit of the Lord is pictured in that central shaft. And then notice the rest of these, to make seven, are in pairs. Go ahead and read them out in pairs, Brody. Uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. There's two shafts. The spirit of counsel and might. Counsel and might. There's another pair. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear. Knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There's another pair. Do you see how it just described the golden lampstand to us? The golden lampstand is a picture of a vessel so full of the seven spirits of God that illumination is sevenfold light. We're not there yet, but I want to get this point across because Bezaliel had several of these seven spirits, or listen to Isaiah 11 too, covering him while he was working on the tabernacle. It wouldn't be hard to probably think through which ones he'd need. Of that list, which ones do you think a man, a finite man, would need to build a work that would be perfect in God's eyes? Knowledge. Knowledge, Dan said. Wisdom. Wisdom. Understanding. Understanding. And don't you think he'd need the central one that ignites all the others? The Spirit of the Lord. It's in Exodus 35, 31. It describes Bezaliel and it said, He hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. So four of the seven spirits of God were resting on Bezaliel. To my knowledge, I know of no man described anywhere in the Scripture except for Christ that had more of the seven spirits of God covering him at one time. Think about that for a minute. Why do I say Christ? You give me an evidentiary testimony why Jesus would have more than that? Of the Spirit, Spirit without measure. Yeah, the Spirit without measure, Brother Rodney said. Which means he had to have all seven covering him. I don't know of any man in the Bible that's listed with this many of the seven spirits of God. He'd have had to be to get this job done the way God wanted it done. But think how significant that is. And if it's not another reason for us really to consider the importance of studying the tabernacle, think about this for a minute. The most important man that has ever walked the face of the earth is Christ, a man who had all seven spirits of God. Nobody else that I'm aware of in the Bible is described with this many of the seven spirits of God, and what they're working on must be something pretty important. This is before Pentecost. This is before God poured out the Holy Ghost. That he allowed four of the seven spirits, and it said filled, by the way. It doesn't mean they were living within him. But they filled him for a temporary purpose, like sometimes they filled the prophets. 
They so saturated Bezaliel, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. There's the three things he'd have to have to be able to do the job right. He'd have to have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to make sure he's getting that job done right. He'd have to have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to do it, and he'd have to have the Spirit of God. That alone should be a pretty good reason why this would be an important subject to study. God took that much attention to this that he put four of those spirits on that man to get that job done. Exodus 31, 1-6, we started reading some of that already. It says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I've called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. And here's what he was able to accomplish with that covering. To devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts, here's the rest of the laborers, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee. There's two more passages, I'm not going to read them, but you can jot them down if you want the references. Exodus 35, 30-35 describes this. And Exodus 38, 22-23 describes how they were engravers and embroiderers and other people that were working in this element. I just told you a moment ago, but Bezaliel and Aholiab did not do all this work by themselves. There were other men that worked with them. There were what I guess you could refer to as subcontractors. There were laborers that worked along with them. It's in Exodus 36, 1-2. It says, Then wrought Bezaliel and Aholiab... And every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work, all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, according to all that the Lord had commanded. And Moses called Bezaliel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even every one whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. So he called some wise-hearted men to back up those brethren as they were doing the work to help them. And it's pretty clear from the statement they were given, in some extent, the spirit of wisdom to do the job. There's a number of different ways you could symbolically look at Bezaliel and Aholiab. I really think the clearest symbol is the one I'm going to give you first. Moses in the Bible is quite often a parallel with Christ in terms of symbolism. So I think if anyone would represent Christ in this building project, it would be Moses. He is the one who got the design directly from God, and so is Christ, isn't he? He gave the direction to some men. So did Christ, didn't he? Is that starting to narrow down who Bezalel and Oliab might represent symbolically? Now, here's where it gets a little fuzzy. One of those men is obviously senior to the other and did a whole lot more than the other and was far more powerful in terms of their authority. Probably my current position on it is that Bezalel represents the apostles and Oliab represents the rest of the ministry. The apostles were the ones that bore the authority. They're the ones that did the principal work of the church, and the ministry were a support to that work. I'm talking about the ministry of the other four offices. Go ahead, Rodney. I, I wonder, I'm throw, I want to throw this out there completely off base. What about it being, this is actually a different, I haven't studied this out on my own. I'm just, what about Moses, uh, a picture of the Godhead, basically what I'm getting at, with Moses being God Almighty, Bezalel, Christ. More of it as, Aholiab had a role there with Bezalel. Aholiab being the ministry. I've heard that. The reason that wouldn't probably be my first choice, Moses representing God, Bezalel representing Christ, and Aholiab would have to then represent the ministry. Now, the reason I probably wouldn't lean that way is because Moses is almost always a type of Christ rather than a type of God. That's the first reason. 
The second reason would be that Bezaliel, as mighty as what he did was, he had four of the seven spirits of God, and Christ had the fullness. That might be a reason I might not go that direction. The other view I've heard, Rodney, is that Bezaliel and Aholiab represent the early and latter rain ministry. If you make that case, though, one of them would obviously not have the same degree of power and would not be accomplishing the same amount. And if you're going to use them in order and say Bezaliel was the early rain ministry and Holy Abs the latter rain, that almost seems the opposite of what our belief is on that, which is that the latter house will be greater than the former, that there'll be greater power even in the latter rain. If that's true, you'd have to reverse them and say Bezaliel was the early rain. See how it starts to get a little disjointed. So my present position on it is the first one I brought up, and that is that Moses, who is almost always, if you're going to use him as a type, a type of Christ, that Bezaliel is the apostolic ministry. I realize someone might say, well, the five offices of ministry, that's all the ministry. There's a vast difference between an apostle and any of those other ministerial offices. An apostle had an entirely different degree of authority and power with God than the other offices, so I, I would make that distinction. Steve, what do you have? I was going to add a few things about uh, Moses was a, was a mediator also, just like Christ was a mediator of the New Covenant. And obviously the design of the tabernacle came from God himself. That's right. Moses was the one who was shown. So he wasn't the originator. That's a great point. That, to me, looks like about the only logical way to approach it. Unless you divide it up into early and latter rain, and then you do have a little bit of a problem because the former man is far more powerful than the latter in terms of the covering he had, in terms of what he built and did. Someone may be able to come up with a solution to that, but my present position, as I said, is probably going to be this one that I put up here because it makes a little more sense to me. It means we could have the same kind of work here in the latter rain, by the way. Christ with a ministry made up of a leadership of apostles and the other offices of the ministry. And they worked hand in hand. These weren't two different jobs going on. This was one job. But one was more assistant to the other. One was more subordinate to the other. And one did not have the same level of a covering of the spirit than the other, did they? Somebody have anything else? I think you mentioned, um, you touched on it last Sunday, that the um, different ministries working under the, those spirits of, you know, the council, mm -hmm. the... the uh, understanding where the apostle obviously is going to be working under all those spirits. I think that's right. Certain of the spirits of God are necessary for certain offices, but an apostle really does need to be fired on all their cylinders in terms of their capability to deal with any condition. Anybody know the basic method of how the tabernacle was built? How were the pieces fastened together? How did they fasten them, Leslie? <laughs> Flush fittings, what you might think of in some cases as dovetailing. The tabernacle had no fasteners in the building. Nothing of the tabernacle building was fastened together with fasteners. There was no glue. There were no nails. But there were tent pegs holding down the lines from the linen curtain. That was the closest thing you'd have to a fastener, and it wasn't fastening anything together. It was just holding it down to the earth. That is how the body of Christ is to be built. You know what a fastener does, right? It forces things to stay together. Isn't that a simple way to look at it? You have two pieces of wood that, by their own nature, aren't going to decide to stick together just because you want them to. You have to put glue in there, or you've got to put screws in there, or you've got to put nails in there, or some other way, some clamp or something, to fasten them together. 
But in the body of Jesus Christ, we're held together by love. And love is not a forced fastening. Love is a choice from me to Brody. And what binds us together is that we love each other. It's an invisible glue that's holding us together with a flush fitting. And you know why it's flush? Because there's things, I can't think of any in Brody, but there's things in each of us that might just not fit quite right with each other. We might grind against each other once in a while. Might not be a flush fit. But God will work on us until it is a perfect flush fit. Until we have such a depth of love and fellowship among ourselves that we fit tight. There's nothing that can come between us. We are compacted together by that which every joint supplieth. Now, not which an external power supplies necessarily, though the Holy Spirit is part of it, but we have to supply something. I've got to supply love to Brother Brody, and Brother Brody's got to supply love to me if we're going to hold together. It has to be love that is shared. Will they put together like that office equipment that you have? I wish I had that down here so you all could see it. I bought a desk that actually fits together like a puzzle, and it, it is as sturdy as anything you've ever seen. It has sockets that slip together. And you can take it apart in three minutes. The entire desk. It's a wraparound desk. You can just take it apart and it's all in flat pieces. There's nothing to attach. There's no screws, no nails, no nothing. And you lay the pieces in place, snap them together. They snap together like a toy almost. And it's a big, heavy, sturdy desk that I use to work on every day. But there is nothing holding it together but gravity and the fact that there are joints that slipped into each other. The pressure of gravity holding this down and the pressure of gravity holding that on top and the joints slipping into each other sturdy as anything I've ever had. And that's how the love of Christ works. It holds us together, not by any carnal fastener, as Steve said, but it holds us together by the Spirit of God and the love of Christ. Jim, what'd you have? There was no man-made fastener in the tabernacle at all. No. All it was fastened with was what you said, but also the way it was designed, how it was put together mm-hmm. under that sort of annoying anointing that they would be jointly fitted, just like that. And something has to be extremely precision built that you can take it, I'm using this example, this desk, out of the box and just pop it together. It has to be precision built. And that's how the tabernacle was. They took it down and put it up, and they didn't need to grind off edges when they put it up. They didn't need to fix things. They just took it apart, and they laid it down, and they transported it, and they got to the next spot, they set it up. And when we talk about the foundations of things, you'll see how amazing it was, how it was put together to hold it all in place. And is that not the same picture as the different pieces of stone in Solomon's temple? It was without the sound of a man's hammer being fitly fitted right in place. They were prepared out in the quarry, but when they were brought in, they were set right in place. That's right. That's right. Everything was flush fitted the way it needed to be. Brody, you had something? Well, I was going to throw in the, uh, Ephesians 2, you know, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone mm-hmm. in whom all the building fitly framed. Fitly framed. That means it's been perfectly cut and designed to just snap together. And that's how God intends us to be. That's why he works on our rough edges until we can be such a perfectly fitly framed building that the lively stones make up a spiritual house that God can inhabit. Colossians in the second chapter talks about being knit together in love. Colossians in the third chapter talks about charity being the bond of perfectness. And 1 John 4 says, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If we love one another, how's the rest of it say? God dwelleth in us. And his love is perfected in us.
You mentioned pressure and gravity. I just think that I, it seems to me like when some of the people of God were in their most uh, vulnerable state is when they were united, you know, with, with, with Moses and Egypt and mm -hmm. the, everything that the apostles went through. They seemed to bind together during that time. The pressure pushed them together, didn't it? You notice this almost every time there's some terrible event going on in the book of Acts that what happens is it either scatters or it presses together. Either causes people to scatter or causes them to tighten down. How about the building materials? Who provided all the building materials? Where'd they come from? They didn't just show up one day and there was a stack that Menards had delivered? Well, if you want to be technical, Egypt provided them all. Well, you're answering two questions at once now, Steve. <laughs> you're answering the next one too. First question was, who provided the materials? Who directly provided the materials? Let me ask you like that. What people? The neighbors? The Amalekites? Moabites? The Israelites. The children of Israel provided all the materials. And in a new covenant, since we are the materials, you know, you've got to provide yourself. That's why we've got to be consistent in our relationship with the Lord, because we're the materials. But where did they get all these materials? Steve just told us, where did they get all these precious items? You're talking about massive amounts of precious metal. Sister Helen? Borrowed the stuff from the Egyptians on the way out. That's right. The 12th chapter of Exodus in the passage in the midst of the description of the Passover, it makes the same of the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. He commanded them. And basically what they did is they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. That sure helps when you need to make curtains that are finely embroidered, when you need to make gold elements, you need to have these big sockets of silver. A slave state, without raising one hand, plundered one of the richest nations on the face of the earth. Without raising one hand in violence. Their God raised his hand quite a few times, ten times. But they never raised their hands in violence and plundered one of the mightiest nations on the earth. And that did provide the exact materials. Now you can really spiritualize that. But that did provide the exact materials needed to build the tabernacle. Don't you think God thought out that ahead of time? There were several reasons he asked them to plunder Egypt. One was to teach Egypt a lesson, to humble Egypt, to bring them down economically. That certainly was one. Another one was they deserved to be paid for all their years of slavery. But really the biggest reason God used was the fact that he needed the material to build a tabernacle as soon as he got them out of Egypt. So he literally had them borrow all the materials they needed to build the house he wanted built. And then he brought them out of Egypt and then he asked them now, are you going to give me an offering? Exodus 3, 21 to 22 is the first place God told Moses what he was going to do, how he was going to give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and they were going to borrow things from them, so to speak. That's a very misleading term. It wasn't borrowing in the sense that they didn't intend to return it. It really does mean that they were going to ask, can I have this? Rodney? Do you think there's a spiritual parallel there? The precious materials coming out of Egypt? Oh, yes. What do you feel it is? Remember a moment ago I said that we are the offering. We're the materials to make up the house of God under the new covenant. You and I are the stones. We're the precious things. Yes. We all were taken out of the world. God plundered the world to get us to build a house. Jim? We are come out of Egypt when we're saved. Yeah, we come out of Egypt when we're saved from the world. God knew ahead of time what he needed. He knew how to provide it. And what I think is so precious about this is it was a willing offering. It says in Exodus 25, it's between the first and the eighth verse, 
says, every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. Which means God did not want anyone giving that didn't want to give it willingly. And I appreciate the fact that the people had such a good spirit about it. The 35th chapter says, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering to the Lord. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, and everyone whom his spirit made willing. Isn't that a sweet way of taking an offering? Their heart stirred him up. The people had a great desire to see God's will done. And you can go on throughout that passage and see in the very end of it, it says, The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord. Every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of the work, which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. And it goes on into the 36th chapter and talks about how the offerings were so generous that the people were bringing that Moses had to literally stop the giving at one point because they had so much more than they needed for the job. The very end of this passage is Exodus 36, 1 to 7. It says, Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it, and too much. Isn't that amazing? So God had not only given them the treasures of Egypt when they left, but apparently he had given them so much of the treasure of Egypt, this is how God is. He gave them more than enough to provide for the need because people were bringing more than even was necessary for the need, which means whatever God had blessed them with was far more than they brought. Isn't that amazing? So they ended up with these treasures themselves and were still able to give to the work of the Lord and produce what they did. How long did it take to build the tabernacle? How long did the construction of the tabernacle take? The Bible is not specific about that. It doesn't tell you exactly when they started building and when they finished building. Sometimes I've heard people make the case that it took nine months, just like a gestation period for a baby. When a baby takes life in the womb before it's born, it takes nine months for it to gestate in the womb. So they think that'd be a nice parallel that it took nine months for the tabernacle. What did take very close to nine months was from the time they got to Mount Sinai to the time the tabernacle was raised up. You know how you can prove that? They got to Mount Sinai when? Does anybody know? Wasn't it Pentecost? 50 days? That's right. So they got there in the beginning of the month. They raised it up in the first month of the next year. So from the time they got to Sinai, when they arrived, to the time they raised it up was very close to nine months. So that may have some significance. What did you have, Sister Leslie? Uh, chapter 40, 17 says, And it came to pass in the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. So that's saying in the second year. Yes. First year, the fourth month, fifth month, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Nine months. And then the first day of the first month of the next year, so for nine months, from the time they got to Sinai to the time that the tabernacle was raised up. But that's not how long it took them to build it. Because they got to Sinai and a number of things happened before they were able to raise the tabernacle up. I think it probably took no more than seven months for the tabernacle to be raised. Six to seven months for the building. The exodus from Egypt happened at the time of the Passover. They arrived 40 some days after Passover and three days later is when God came down in power on Sinai. Exodus 19.1 is where it says in the third month, when they were gone forth, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. 
Exodus 19, 10-11, The Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down inside of all the people on Mount Sinai. And then after he came down on Mount Sinai, Moses went up into the mountain for 40 days. Right there is 40 days into the period that they weren't building the tabernacle yet. 40 days Moses went up there. During that time, God gave him the pattern and instructions for the tabernacle and the Aaronic priesthood and some of these other issues. He came down from Mount Sinai, and what did he find? Children of Israel worshiping the golden calf, and he broke the tablets. This is where people get confused, so I want to bring this in. He pitched a temporary tabernacle outside the camp, which is a strange thing. It's in Exodus 33, 7. That doesn't mean the tabernacle of the Lord had been built yet. It's a temporary tabernacle he pitched outside the camp. And then he ascended up into Sinai a second time for 40 days. And after that time is when he came down with his face shining and they wanted him to put the veil over his face. That was his second descent. And then he gave Israel the law. He gave them the pattern for the tabernacle and for the priesthood. And then the tabernacle was completed and set up. Leslie read for us here a moment ago on the first day of the first month of the second year. That's in Exodus 40, 17, if you didn't get it when she was reading it. If you started from the first day of the first month and took out 15 days, because the 15th day of the month is Passover, then you took out 50 days from there till Pentecost, then 80 to 90 days between the time they were waiting at Sinai and Moses went up in the mount twice. You see how you have to start narrowing down the amount of time it took to build the tabernacle? Once you're done, you couldn't possibly have more than seven months left to build the tabernacle. It could have been anywhere, I think, from about six or seven months. When the tabernacle was finally set up, Moses went over it, so to speak, I imagine. He looked it over. He gave his final approval. And the blessing was put on the tabernacle. I'm going to give you several verses. Exodus 39, 32 to 33, somebody get. And Exodus 39, 43. Who's got the first one? Stephen's got that one. Who will take Exodus 39, 43? Dan? Okay, and then after that, we're going to discuss the final purification and sanctification of the tabernacle. Who's got number 7, 1 to 2? Who wants to read that? Brother Kosa? Exodus 39, 32 to 33. Stephen had that one. Thus was all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so did they. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all his furniture, his tashes, his boards, his bars, and his pillars, and his sockets. Then somebody had 43, 10 verses later. And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Even so had they done it, and Moses blessed them. Isn't that an incredible statement? Don't miss that. Moses must have still had that blueprint so alive in his mind by the Spirit of God, he looked over the work, and I don't think he just glanced at it either. I think he measured this. God said it was to be three cubits this way. Let's take a look, see if this fits. Yep, that's how it's supposed to be. What materials under this gold, by the way, Bezalel? Sheet and wood, okay. How about this laver? You made that solid, right? Solid brass? No wood in there. This mercy seat that's on the Ark of the Covenant. What materials did you use in that? Just gold? Now, Bezaliel, I need you to tell me. It's very important. Did you fasten the cherubim to the top of the mercy seat? What answer do you think Bezaliel would have given to that? No. no. 
They were literally out of the mercy seat. He took and carved that out of one block. Do you think Moses did that? I think he did. I think Moses looked over that project, and this is astonishing. His mind was so enlivened by that vision God had given him, he knew exactly what to look for. You know God's going to do that in the ministry in this last day? Who know exactly what God wants, and they'll be able to look over the project and say, we've got to move that a little bit. Or here's the change you need to make if you want to go on. Or here's the issue it has got to be dealt with in your life if you want to go on and achieve the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There is going to be that kind of precision given by Christ through his ministry. It'll be an incredible thing when you've got, if Christ represents Moses, when you've got somebody like that that can look at Bezaliel and Oliab's work and say, hmm, just what God showed me. If Jesus could say to his ministry, what you built is exactly what God showed me. Exactly what I've asked you to build. That's the parallel here in a spiritual sense. Beautiful picture. Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. And Moses blessed them. I'm going to touch on a few verses in Hebrews 9. We had already touched on a little piece of this. In the 19th verse of Hebrews 9, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to just skim through it. After Moses blessed them, and after Moses approved the tabernacle, they purified it and sanctified it with blood, with oil, and it was sanctified, and the altar was dedicated with offerings made by the princes of the twelve tribes. Hebrews 9.19 says, For when Moses took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God had enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves was better sacrifices than these. Who had Numbers 7, 1 and 2? Is that Brother Cosin? Yeah, and it came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle and had anointed it and sanctified it and all the instruments thereof, both the altar and all the vessels thereof, and had anointed them and sanctified them, that the princes of Israel, heads of the house of their fathers, who were the princes of the tribes, and were over them that were numbered, offered. The leaders of each of those tribes, the princes of those tribes, they brought offerings. And it was the blood of the offerings of those princes that were part of the consecration of that tabernacle. I'm not going to read it, but if you want another passage to go along with that, it's Numbers 7. 13 to 17. After all that, after Moses looked over the project, after Moses blessed him, after they sanctified it with the blood and the oil, and after they brought the sacrifices of the princes together, there was one thing left that had to be done to inaugurate that as God's place. I said here in the beginning, and I'm going to close the same element. What does it take to make it God's house? God's presence being there. God accepting it, Brother Lee, that's right. God showing up in his divine, dynamic presence. Exodus 40, 34 to 38. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Isn't this so similar to what happened when they founded the temple? And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
God had to be the final seal on it. Every other thing they did, the building process, as perfect as it was, Moses' approval, as important as that was, Moses' blessing, the sanctification of it and consecration of it with blood and oil and the blood of those sacrifices of those 12 princes. But finally, you want to know that God approves. The glory of the Lord came down on that tabernacle. Praise the great and holy God of heaven.